And wow, now we couldn't imagine living any other way, right? Um, now, what Steve Jobs didn't say in that speech was, the iPhone is really amazing at holding doors open. It just slips right under the little space with that door as the perfect doorstop, right? He didn't say, it's really good way to spread butter on toast. It's just so perfect for that, right? He didn't say, it's the best paperweight you will ever get. Now, why didn't he do that? Because that's not what it was designed for. Could it do all those things? Obviously, yes, it could do them and do them just, just fine. But it would be uh, a debasing of its design, right? It would be cheapening of the product. Um, those are all ways you could use the iPhone, but that's not its purpose. That's not what it's designed for. Um, it's going to achieve its highest potential and create the most satisfaction in your life when it's used in accordance with its design. You could use it for those other things, but it would be a waste. If you want it to reach its highest potential, give its greatest satisfaction, then you have to use it uh, in accordance with its creator's intent. That's where you're going to get the greatest joy out of that product, right? And the interesting thing is, as you guys probably know where I'm going, that's not just true of the phone. That's true with all things in life, right? That's true with us. Um, to experience the greatest satisfaction in life means that we too must fulfill our created intent and we must be used with intentionality according to our created design. Last week, Zach introduced the first part of this particular passage. This is kind of a two-part um, series for, for this particular section of Philippians. Um, and when he introduced it, we saw that Paul, in his current circumstances, was facing a terrible trial. He was in a Roman prison because of his preaching of the gospel. And yet, even in the midst of this dire circumstance where he's chained to a prison guard all day long, he looks at life a little bit differently, we, begin to, we began to see, right? He had a definition of life that allowed him to face his situation and interpret it through his mission that Zach so eloquently uh, pointed out last week. Through the purpose that he believed he was designed for, he was able to say that he had joy in the midst of his cir circumstance. He had contentment, right? Paul considered his life to be a reenactment of the story of Christ. But what about us, right? We're not Paul. He was the greatest evangelism, uh, evangelist of all time. He wrote a third of our New Testament, right? Uh, when he wrote this, he was in jail for preaching Christ. That's not our situation. Zach gave another great example last week of Richard uh, Wormbrand, the Romanian pastor. If you were here, I'm sure you remember the story, right? Um, he worked for the underground church in Romania in 1944 when communism was beginning to spread, and he was put in prison and tortured for 14 years. And that's an amazing and inspiring story, and we need to hear stories like that all the time so that we can be elevated in our thinking and our sense of satisfaction in Christ. Uh, it inspires us and reminds us how joy is the product of having a purpose or a mission, right? But sometimes, for me at least, it's still hard to connect with those stories. They're all inspiring, but it's not true to my daily life. Um, 
when I've had a fight with my wife the night before and I roll over in the morning and I look at her and I don't know how I want to act towards her that morning, right? Um, what does Paul have to say about that, right? When we do the thankless job of parenting our children and sometimes it feels lonely, like we've been put in solitary confinement or maybe like it's an episode of the Groundhog Day and it's just repeating itself over and over and over and it's thankless, right? Um, where's the joy in the gospel then? When we have to decide what compromises at work we're, we're willing to make so that this time we'll finally get that promotion, um, what stated mission do we look at as an evaluating grid? Or when, we, or, or when we or a loved one is struggling with some sort of chronic illness, and no matter how hard we've prayed, no matter what treatment we've gotten, we seem like there's no answers, right? Where's God then? Um, so it's in these everyday moments that we get to decide what's the definition of our life. In our day-to-day -day life, what are we living for, right? Where do we find purpose? Where's our created design? Uh, it's here you find out what are the things that are most important to you. Um, what is it makes that your, your life worth living irregardless um, of circumstances, regardless of what happens to you? Um, Paul anticipates that we'll have these questions. And so in our passage today, he um, is writing to the church at Philippi, and he's seeking to encourage them. He's seeking to reassure them. He's seeking to tell them that their story may not be his story, and yet their story is no less important. They have a key role to play, too. Here in our passage, he reminds them that just as much for them as for him, it comes down to a question of design, and it comes down to a question of how to live out that design, of focus, of intentionality. It comes to a question of design and how to live out that design in a focused and intentional way, right? So in verses 28 through 26, Paul tells us that we're designed for a Christ-centered life. He says, as Zach said earlier, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I remember... Uh, reading that incredible statement as a young person, and I find that statement very hard to believe. I wanted to reinterpret it, right? No, Paul, uh, to live is gain and to die is Christ, right? I have my whole life ahead of me. There's so much that I wanna do, right? I have a lot that I wanna gain, and to die, that's not it, right? Uh, so it's hard sometimes to understand his way of thinking or to interpret what is it he's getting after? What does he mean? Because we like life, right? We like what God's given us. And yet scripture affirms time and time again, and Jesus Christ himself tells us in John 17 that this is eternal life, to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, right? It's here that we find our design. It's here we're told that we find our highest potential. It's here that we will find our greatest satisfaction. As Christians, we believe that we were created with a purpose, and we find that in our relationship with God. We find that in our living out the story. We find that in living out the story that he has written for us. And that's a unique worldview. When Life Magazine was still in print, 
which I know some of you don't even know what Life Magazine is anymore, but when it was still a printed publication, they did a whole magazine edition on the meaning and purpose of life. They came up with basically two general categories that I would argue today are still the two general categories. They asked, why are we here? And they got answers from people like Jose Martinez, a taxi driver. He says, we're here to die. Just live and die. I drive a cab, I do some fishing, I take my girl out, pay taxes, do a little reading, then you drop dead. You're rich, you're poor, you're here, you're gone. You're like the wind, and after you're gone, other people come. We're going to destroy ourselves, and there's nothing we can do about it. Positive, inspiring, right? <laughs> it's like a bumper sticker right there, huh? But then on the other side, you have people like, um, like Garrison Keillor from NPR. He said, we exist to know God and to serve God. That's why we're here. Or Mike Ditka was asked, and he said, I believe we're here for a reason. We were created by somebody to live for somebody and to return to somebody. I believe I'm created by God to do the job he's given me while I'm here to serve him and then return to him. On the flip side, you have Stephen Jay Gold, the paleontologist, and he says this of the human race, our appearance looks more like an accidental afterthought than the culmination of a prefigured plan. We're here because one odd group of fish had a, had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. We're here because the Earth's never frozen entirely during an ice age. We're here because a small, tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. When you read this article, it breaks down along these lines, same lines that most people break down along today. You've got two options. Either I believe there's a God and he's created me and there's purpose to that, or I say, no, there is no God, there's no design, there's no purpose, so you have to create your own meaning. Um, well, I would say all of us here subscribe to the former view, right? And yet, functionally, I would argue that oftentimes we land in the same place as people who ascribe to the latter view, right? Oftentimes, we create our own meaning out of just whatever we think will make us happy right now. We put our finances, our fame, our family, and our fun at the center of our living. And then when our circumstances are difficult or they change, we become untethered and our purpose is robbed. You see this a lot of times with athletes, right? Um, either they age or they get injured, their career wanes or is taken away from them, and some of the time they struggle with meaning and purpose. What do I do now, right? I am a 25-year-old guy and everything I've been doing has led up to this moment and now that's quickly taken away from me. And so you do see, in some instances, a turning to alcohol, a turning to drugs. Um, but it's not just... Um, them that do this, when we can't deal with the hole that's created when something that's important to us is taken away, we do the same thing, right? Um, I've seen this in my life, personally, and I've seen it in a very Christian sanctified way. I graduated from seminary, um, and I didn't just go for the 60-hour degree, I didn't just go for the 90-hour degree, I went for the 120-hour degree, because I... Anyone who goes for a THM, come talk to me uh, if you're thinking about it, and I will talk you out of that. So, five years later, after 
undergrad an additional five years for a master's degree and, you know, about twenty dollars to $25,000 a year, of which I was responsible for half, I graduated. And the world was going to be my ministry oyster, right? I spent 10 months looking for a ministry position at a church. I interviewed all over the country. I was often top 10, sometimes top five, occasionally top three, face-to-face interviews, phone interviews, and yet I was always the bridesmaid and never the bride. (laughs) And so, and it was super discouraging too, because for one instance, there was a church in Tennessee that wanted to interview me for an associate pastor role, community, small groups, all that. It's like, okay, great. They said, but, we need you to pay your own way to come out here. And by the way, the salary is only $35,000 a year. I was like, okay, this is humbling. I just invested all this money and all this time uh, to do what I thought God was calling me to do, and yet um, it's not happening. What's wrong with you, God? It's your fault, right? Um, And yet, looking back, I see God's hand of providence all over that. It's easy to see it today. Now I'm managing director at CRI. Uh, I've been doing that for uh, six years now. I've been moved here to Rockwall because of that job and got involved in this church, got to be a youth director, work with all these wonderful uh, students who are sitting in the audience today and many who've already graduated. I've met all of you. Our family's in an awesome situation with a, a small group, community group that we love. Um, and all the things that that um, God has done, I see his hand in it now, and I wouldn't go back and change any of it, right? But at the time, it was difficult to see that, right? So, and this is exactly what I need. To be honest, I'm, uh, I'm glad, and trust me, there's probably many congregations out there that are glad that six or seven years ago, fresh out of seminary, that I wasn't being hired as a head pastor or an associate pastor, right? I had a growing period uh, that God needed to bring me through, and I wouldn't have it any other way. And what I do every day with CRI um, is so rewarding uh, and brings me joy. And it's increased a skill set that I didn't even know that I would ever have the chance to exercise. And so God knows what he's doing, but at the time, it's difficult to see. Um, but we see this in scripture too. The city of Dothan is only mentioned twice in the Bible. And the first time is in Genesis 37. And the city of Dothan is the town right next to where Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. And you think, wow, that's what Dothan's known for? I'm sorry, Dothan, right? But then we know the rest of the story. And by the end of the book of Genesis, we have Joseph's favorite famous line that what you intended for harm, God intended for good. And God saved the whole civilized world through that instance of his brothers selling him uh, through, into slavery by Dothan. The next time we see Dothan is in 2 Kings. And Elijah is in, not Elijah, Elisha is in Dothan. And the city is surrounded by a foreign army. And he sees a vision of angels of God's army there, and he says, don't worry, the city will be delivered, and they are, right? Again, in the moment, though, if you are a citizen of Dothan, it's like, it sucks, what's God doing? Where is he, right? And then, as the rest of the story continues, we see God's deliverance, and that God, again, was using this for something for his purposes, right? In the one case, though, it was pretty immediate, right? Their deliverance from this foreign army happened right away. In Joseph's case, it was years and years being in jail, suffering, being falsely accused of things, 
uh, it took a long time for that to come to fruition, right? And, you know, when we read um, the Hall of Fame for Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, we're reminded that there's many others who died with that promise still ahead and never saw it realized during their lifetime, right? And yet they trusted, again, that there was a better purpose, a heavenly city that they were living for. But in the moment, what was their daily experience like, right? It was like you and our, you and mine, right? It was the same struggle, the same grind. And we don't understand why, oftentimes. And so this is when we come to the place where we have to say, what's going to be the center of my life? When Christ is the center of our lives, we have a God-given purpose, and it's unshakable regardless of our circumstances, right? He runs the game. Scripture tells us, he who began a good work in, in us will be faithful to complete it, right? It tells us that our light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. No human, pur- no human purpose can handle the weight of our desires. Everything will always let us down, right? Jack Higgins wrote 60 novels. All 60 were bestsellers. How many novelists would love to be that guy, right? And yet, when he was asked in an interview what's something he wished that he would have known as a boy, this is what he said. I wish that I knew that when you get to the top, there's nothing there, and you see so many people take all their desires and point it to a creative purpose, and when they've achieved it, They're just empty. Um, So no human desire, no human goal can handle, no human human circumstance can handle or human purpose can handle the weight of our desires. Um, Only Christ can. So what does it look like then to have a Christ-centered life like Paul's encouraging us to? What does it mean to say that to live is Christ? Emphasis being on the is. To live is Christ. Life is found in Christ. Does that mean reading the Bible all day? Is that what it looks like? No, I hope not. Um, It doesn't. For Paul, life being found in Christ meant this. Life was meant to be a reenactment of the story of Christ. In our context, in our community, with our people, we reenact the story of Christ. Christ is our life, right? Paul tells us that to live is Christ, to die is gain. Later on in the book, he tells us that he would somehow, he desires to share with Christ in his suffering, in his death, so that he too can achieve the resurrection from the dead, right? To live means to reenact Christ in our circumstances day to day with our people in our community that God surrounded us with. You know, there's the cheesy example of this, and yet as a eighth grader, it was awesome. I had the amazing WWJD bracelet, right? You remember that thing? Uh, and it's actually from a really, based off a really good book, What Would Jesus Do? Uh, but you know, maybe it got commercialized, maybe it became something that other than what it was originally intended to be, yet the actual intention of it is pretty, pretty strong, pretty good, that every time you look at your wrist, whatever circumstance you're in and whatever you're doing, you would remember, what would Jesus do in this circumstance? If Jesus came today into my life, into my family, with my job, with my role as a father, as a husband, as a coworker, um, as a friend, how would he do it? What would the gospel look like in that context? 
that's our purpose. That's what it means to live a Christ-centered life. Um, now, that does sound like a lot to bite off sometimes, right? But here's the good news. Paul says we don't do it alone. If you continue on in the passage, he tells us this. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This isn't a Lone Ranger thing. This is something that we get to do with each other in community, right? When we truly uh, imbibe this identity, you know, here it's translated, let your, only let your manner of life be worthy. In, uh, in the original language in Greek, that's actually just one word. Um, and a more wooden translation would be, um, be a citizen of. Be a citizen of the gospel. Just like you would identify yourself as an American, I want you to identify yourself as belonging to the community of Christ, belonging to that gospel-centered community. So for the Philippians, that would be a big deal because they're actually a Roman colony. They were a military outpost. Um, And so they were, as Roman citizens, didn't have to pay taxes. They were subject to all the privileges of being Romans. Many in the town were either soldiers or related to soldiers because of it being a military outpost. So they took a lot of pride in their identity as citizens of Rome, right? So when Paul's using that language, that citizenship language, he's challenging them. I want you to take the same type of pride, in fact, more pride, I want your identity first to be grounded in that you're a citizen of heaven, you're a citizen of the gospel, that you're a part of this Christ community. And so that's his challenge for us. So where do we find that today? What would be a good modern example of that? Maybe if you are a veteran or you have served, you take strong pride in that and you should. Your service is valued very much. But there's identity in that, right? That you share with others, that you're proud of uh, in a much... Uh, less gravity, uh, important type of way. I know some of you guys do CrossFit in here, and CrossFitters like are kind of weird when it comes to like some people. It's kind of cultish in the way that people uh, act. I'm part of. I do CrossFit. I'm a part of. I can say that because I do it occasionally as well. So, but you take identity in that, right? And there's something that you're proud of. You belong to a community, and when you miss out on um, going and participating and taking part with that community, it's a disappointment, it's sad. Uh, For some people today, it's, uh, I didn't even know this was a term, but apparently people are oilies now. Like, if you love like young living or, you know, um, these different oils, like they're actually called oilies now. There's a whole community of people and it's a great product, but it is also something that people take identity in and find community around and purpose with, right? And that's not bad. Those are all good things. But we're challenged by Paul not to reject our Philippian citizenship, but to have our primary citizenship, the first way we identify ourselves, the core of our being, be centered around Christ and being a part of his community. You know, sometimes though, as believers, um, this gets a little bit messy, right? You'd think that believers would be the best at this, and yet oftentimes we're not, right? Oftentimes um, it's within 
denominations fighting against each other, churches fighting against each other, or within the church itself in fighting, and we don't value one another. We don't treat each other as fellow citizens of the community of Christ. At A&M, where I graduated, there's two Christian fraternities, and once a year, they would have an intramural flag football game, and they always had to hire extra refs for that game because they... Honestly, there was more fighting, more cursing, more uh, cheating than in any other game that happened during the whole intramural season, right? Um, and so many times there's, we look at the community of Christ and you say, yeah, I understand you want me to be a part of that community, but I'd rather do it on my own because I don't like some of the people in my community, right? I don't uh, get along with them. And yet the way that God has engineered it, the way that he has dictated our spirituality will grow is within community, within the body of Christ. Some are gifted, scripture tells us, with certain gifts. Others are gifted with other gifts, and we need each other. We don't form a complete whole body. We won't be spiritually mature unless we have one another. And so when we're faced with suffering, how do we count it a privilege? How do we um, find purpose in the midst of it? Well, one, we've got to do it in community. We've got to encourage one another. We've got to surround one another. Um, we've got to hold one another accountable. And two, we've got to remember that all this momentary affliction um, does compare in comparison to, the weight, comparison to the weight of glory that is to come. When we embrace God's purposes, we become unshakable. When we do it together, we reach our highest purpose for which we were designed for. I'm going to end with this story. There was a boat coming from the UK to America in 1735 on its way to Savannah, Georgia. There was a young Anglican mission, uh, minister on board um, named John Wesley. And on the way over, there was a storm, and everyone was freaking out. It was a bad storm. Uh, it didn't look like they were going to make it. He was also the chaplain for the boat, and he was uh, one of the ones who was freaking out the most, just along with everyone else. He looked over, though, um, on the deck of the ship, and there was, a, there was a group of German Moravians who were on their way to go be missionaries to the Native Americans. And they weren't freaking out. And they were incredibly calm. They were worshiping. They were praying, even the children. And it just stuck in his mind. So when they arrived at their destination, he approached this group um, and he asked them, what do you have that I don't? How are you able to stay so calm? And they said, well, if you know Christ, if you're connected to Christ, you can trust in his purposes and you can remain calm in any circumstance. Do you know Christ? And he said, well, I like to think that I did, but maybe I didn't. Uh, maybe I don't. And so John Wesley, Anglican minister, uh, chaplain of the boat, on his way to serve in Savannah, Georgia, the Anglican church, converted to Christianity after this experience with these German Moravians. Because he realized, for me, Christ isn't at the center. I never really understood that. I never understood what it meant to trust in him and trust in him alone for salvation, find purpose, renewal, calm, peace in him. So that's my encouragement to you today. If John Wesley uh, was humble enough to recognize and realize that he wasn't putting Christ in the center of his life, my encouragement to each of us today 
is that we would take a moment to renew our faith, to put Christ back in the center, to look for the peace that can be found only in him, to remember, no, that doesn't mean all of our circumstances are going to change like the kids today, right? We have to learn to find contentment, whether we have uh, much uh, or we are in one, right? Whether we are imprisoned or whether uh, we are free, right? Whether we are sick or whether we are healthy. We've taken our vows, our wedding vows to our king, right? In sickness and in health, um, in much and in need and in want, right? Um, Remember those vows today and remember that Christ is enough and only can you reach your true potential, only can you find your satisfaction when you're connected to him and when you're when you do that within, a, within his community, within Christ's community. Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful um, for Paul's encouragement. Teach us what it means to say to live as Christ and to die as gain. Make us worthy of being citizens of your gospel community. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.